Welcome to the Behavioral Healthcare Executive Podcast. I'm BHE Senior Editor Tom Valentino, and today I am joined by Ronan Levy, the Executive Chairman and Co-Founder of Field Trip Health, a psychedelic therapy development and delivery firm. Ronan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. All right. So uh, both you and your Field Trip co-founders have an interesting backstory. Uh, before the entrepreneurship uh, phase of your career, I-, I believe you were practicing law, correct? What uh, what motivated you to transition into the kind of work that you're doing now? Yeah, I, I like to say that uh, I used to be a lawyer, but I'm feeling much better now. Um, <laughs> to be quite honest, my, my transition from law was something that was always in the cards. I realized uh, very early in in terms of starting law school and my practice uh, and my career uh, in that respect, that I wasn't well cut out for that kind of stuff. I prefer challenging the status quo and, and challenging conventions as opposed to adhering to them and, and enforcing them and uh, just a very different mindset. So even though I started my practice or my career as a practicing lawyer, I was always on a path to getting out. It was just a question of what was the right time and place to, to do so. Uh, and it actually happened initially in 2011, just over 10 years ago. Uh, I, I have it noted in my calendar. It's my personal day of growth because that was the day I quit my last job. And it was also the same day, five years later, that we signed the letter of intent to sell one of the businesses that um, myself and the other co-founders in Field Trip actually started. So it's it's been a pretty auspicious day for, for us and, and for me. But um, while in the practice, I, I progressively worked uh, from being a private practice lawyer to being an in-house lawyer, transitioning that into more business roles, and then eventually left in 2011 to start my first business. Um, and just carved out a niche, really doing things that most people wouldn't expect. Uh, so our first business was actually a cash for gold business, which is not a business that has a very positive reputation, but we went into it with a view of trying to bring legitimacy and authenticity and transparency to that business. And we were quite successful doing so. Um, so just taking a different look on it, putting a different spin on it. So it's always been kind of in my head and in my space to, um, you know, look at opportunities that other people would would blush over. And so after that, we started that, we launched it, it was operating. I never had ambitions of being a, an executive running a gold business in my life. So I actually went back into the private practice of law, uh, working with startups, uh, tech startups. It was the heart of the sort of tech boom. And that's how I actually met the co-founders in our last business, which was in the Canadian medical cannabis industry. Um, who were exploring a number of ideas, including one in cannabis, but they were reticent to get into the cannabis industry because they thought it was too sketchy. Uh, and I was like, listen, guys, this is now legal. You don't get an opportunity where uh, a massive black market opportunity overnight becomes legal. It would be a real miss not to take take advantage of this opportunity and having more comfort, You know, bringing that lens of if you don't like it, don't avoid it, bring authenticity and transparency to it. Uh, you know, I kind of cajoled those guys long enough that they've finally agreed to look at it and, and you know, we got excited about it. And, and then our last business was born and, and that kind of set the footprint for this business. Yeah. So what, uh, what made you want to move into the area of psychedelics then? Yeah. So with Canadian cannabis clinics or business in the cannabis industry, all of us got into that industry being fairly agnostic uh, to the therapeutic potential of cannabis, open-minded, but far from persuaded. I think philosophically, we all agreed that uh, the war on drugs made no sense. And so if we could do our part to avoid putting more people in jail for something that's reasonably innocuous, that was good enough for us. But what we saw was just how 
profoundly transformative cannabis medicine was. We had uh, over 150,000 patients through our, our network of clinics across Canada. Uh, almost everybody reported significant improvements in their health and well-being, uh, even though it wasn't necessarily a, a double-blind clinical trial or anything along those lines. You know, the objective anecdotal um, observational data said this is really profound. And all of our doctors, again, many of who came in quite skeptical uh, to cannabis medicine, almost uniformly reported that it was the single most effective medicine that they'd ever prescribed in their career. So it really opened our mind to once stigmatized medicines and, and perspectives around health and well-being uh, that I think have been generally closed off to conventional allopathic medicine. So after we sold that business and spent a couple of years helping build Aurora Cannabis, the company that acquired it, um, we left to do something new. The time was kind of the time was right to part ways. And so we started exploring a number of opportunities. And we just so happened that one of the first meetings we had after we left um, was with uh, a woman named Judy, Judy Bloomstock, who was looking to raise capital for uh, a drug development company, looking at different formulations of psilocybin. And she kind of alerted us to all the things that were happening in psychedelics. And, and two things kind of happened. First was... Um, we realized that we had a unique skill set. Having scaled a clinical network in a stigmatized medicine area with Canadian cannabis clinics and, and operating it very efficiently, efficiently and doing it very well and helping a lot of people, as well as helping scale the broader cannabis industry, we were uniquely qualified to bring that kind of experience to bear on, on this emerging opportunity in psychedelics. And secondly, personally, I've done a lot of work with meditation and, and metaphysics and coaching and therapy and self-reflection. And I know just how profoundly it has positively affected my life. And so when Judy in that meeting uh, described a single psilocybin-assisted therapy session as like 10 years of therapy in, the, in an afternoon, even though I knew that to be a significant exaggeration, even if, if there was any truth to that whatsoever, I was of the view that psychedelics are something that the world needs, that this is a really important opportunity to pursue uh, and it needs to happen. And so we spent a lot of time trying to understand where opportunities in the space may be and, and out of that field was born. Yeah, I think psychedelics in general has really emerged as uh, kind of a hot button topic within the last year or two. And uh, it certainly seemed like uh, you and your uh, colleagues jumped in at, at a great time. Um, why do you think interest in the use of psychedelics to treat addiction and other mental health conditions has heated up so much over these past uh, a couple of years? Yeah, I think it's a, a convergence of factors all coming together at the right place in time. You know, first of all, cannabis has done a lot of the legwork to challenge once stigmatized or, or strongly held viewpoints about certain drugs and, and attitudes towards them. So we had kind of a, a more comfortable playing field to have the conversation around psychedelics. Uh, I think the research has been profound, you know, um, psychedelic research by and large stopped around 1970, but about 10 or 15 years ago, some very enterprising academics at Johns Hopkins and NYU and Imperial College and the folks at the Beckley Foundation really started to pick up the research, which started to show really profound results. So you have uh, an open-minded atmosphere, you have incredibly persuasive scientific data supporting this, and then you have this massive mental health crisis that we're all experiencing right now with conventional treatments not working and, and people increasingly looking to 
alternative modalities to help them both with their physical and their mental health in part triggered by, you know, I think as a backlash to the opioid crisis and uh, a loss of faith in, in sort of the big pharmaceutical model that has been driving healthcare, I think for the last sort of 30, 40, 50 years. So all of these kind of came together uh, in a relatively small moment of time. And I think that's why we're seeing this interest. Um, you know, I think people are excited about it because uh I think people need it and, and the evidence and, and safety profile is quite persuasive. I think one of the things that's interesting um, when it comes to psychedelic assisted psychotherapy, uh, it, it's different um, from how uh, other treatments uh, that involve the use of medications are provided. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not like you can, um, you know, just give a patient uh, you know, a, a form of, uh, you know, psychedelic, uh, you know, substance and just send them on their way. Um, you just kind of talk about the differences in, in implementing that into psychotherapy and, and treatment for patients. Yeah, that's a very good point. And I think it's one we should emphasize if people aren't familiar with what's going on. But the emergence of psychedelics as a therapeutic modality is really in the context of psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy. We're not using the psychedelic drug as an antidepressant or a mental health treatment in and of itself. It's being used as a catalyst to enhance the efficacy of the therapy around it. Now, there are certainly um, some neurobiological effects that enhance the therapeutic outcomes, but the evidence seems to suggest that it really is being used as a catalyst for the therapy and the opening it provides uh, for the emotional processing more so than just changing, you know, the, the serotonin levels in the brain or anything along those lines. And it's what I like about psychedelics. It's actually one of the things that I found uh, I liked quite significantly about the cannabis industry is that conventional allopathic medicine, by and large, the person receiving treatment is a passive participant in it. You know, you go, you see the doctor, the doctor prescribes something, you take the pill, hopefully the pill does the work or not. Um, and that's it. Uh, whereas with cannabis and certainly with psychedelics, because it's not a single pill, uh, because it's very active, you need to triage, you need to understand what works for you. You need to do the work. It becomes a much more active experiential medical experience, which gives a lot of agency and autonomy back to people uh, and makes them an active participant in their healthcare. And I think that's really important. Uh, I think it makes people feel relevant and and involved in their own lives. Um, And I think that's probably one of the failings of conventional approaches to, let's say, psychiatry in particular, uh, is that um, it was very passive just trying to use a drug to solve a problem when we know, uh, at least I believe, you know, the human experience is a lot more than just our neurochemistry. Uh, there's a lot more going on and we need to get into the emotions and our feelings and and all of that as part of the process. Um, and, and that's so what's so exciting about psychedelic assisted therapies. Um, and for people who aren't aware, what typically is involved uh, when a person participates in psychedelic assisted therapies is that there's a lot of preparatory work with a therapist or team of therapists. So the range of issues and, and experiences to be explored and, and potentially processed uh, are, are established. Uh, then there's a session with the drug, uh, which is typically just a person puts on eye shades, music, comfortable chair, and then just go inward. Um, to experience whatever comes up. Uh, And then afterwards, there's a very active integration process where we take more conventional cognitive behavioral therapy techniques uh, and take advantage of the period of neuroplasticity that seems to happen after a psychedelic experience to enable people not only to do the emotional processing, but to make the lifestyle and outlook and habit change that will actually sustain uh, the improved moods. Because 
the one thing that happens is that most psychedelics are natural, fast acting antidepressants. So people feel better. It's really about taking that feeling better and, and making it into something that's sustainable. Field trips got a lot of things going on uh, among them. Uh, you recently opened a facility for studying plant-based psychedelics in Jamaica. Uh, what can you tell us about that? Yeah. So when we were getting started with psychedelics, we kind of looked out and tried to do our best to predict the future. And we realized that there was going to be two paths to access to, to psychedelic therapies. One was going to be the conventional FDA clinical trial synthetic molecule, kind of single molecule approach that we're, we're used to from a, a medical pharmaceutical perspective. And the other one that was going to look a lot like what we saw with cannabis, where it's driven by a lot more grassroots political activism. And, you know, as we looked further and further out, or as, as we tried to think further and further out, we quickly realized that there'd probably be a convergence at some point that these two paths would operate, operate in parallel very harmoniously, I think, but eventually they would start to overlap when while people or when people start to look to psychedelic, even in the sort of medical context as being not just relevant to treating, you know, depression or anxiety or any other DSM indicated mental health conditions, but realize that it just enhances their quality of life, much like conventional therapy does. Um, but just on a, I would say a very accelerated, much more intense basis. And, and so not realizing which path would get across the line first, but wanting to be positioned to participate in either or both. Uh, we wanted to do the work that we saw was relevant to establishing the cannabis industry in terms of cultivation protocols, SOPs, making sure that when you are using plant-based psychedelics, you're giving good, clean, pure, unadulterated, toxin-free, mold-free, bacteria-free products. So you don't create any unnecessary risks uh, in terms of these, these therapies. And, and so that's the work we're doing in Jamaica. It's a cultivation and research facility, really looking at developing the best protocols uh, for cultivation, anticipating we'll see other states like happened in Oregon, create legal markets for, for plant-based psychedelic therapies, as opposed to synthetic molecule-based psychedelic therapies, which is the more conventional way. Um, and, uh, as well as trying to identify, you know, new, new tryptamines and, and new molecules. Cause one of the things we did see also in psychedelics is that while everyone still talks about THC and CBD as the relevant molecules, there's a hundred known minor cannabinoids, each of which have incredible therapeutic potential. Um, and we believe that the same would hold true, uh, with psilocybin producing mushrooms. So we wanted to invest in understanding the basic research and, and science of psilocybin producing mushrooms as, as well as the cultivation practices. Has your work been impacted uh, by the COVID-19 pandemic over the past year? Have you guys had to adjust your priorities, delay any projects? Um, how, how has your work changed as a result of what's been going on in the world? Yeah, so, so I'm, a, I'm a big believer in, in not finding silver bullets, but always finding silver linings. And, and so that happened with us. By and large, we haven't been impacted too negatively. It's really hard to parse out what impact the pandemic has had because our first clinic opened in the midst of the pandemic. So, um, you know, uh, it, it's hard to say if people are avoiding us or more interested in, in the therapies that we're offering because this is the only context in which we've operated. Pandemic did cause some construction delays uh, for sure uh, in you know LA and New York and, and and in Amsterdam not significant not material but pushed us back a bit but what it did it open up was an opportunity to explore some projects that we always thought were relevant but not core to what we were doing and build out our digital technology platform so. 
We have two digital tools that are, are part of the field trip ecosystem. Portal, which is designed to support the in-clinic patient experience. So it's a, it's a great tool that therapists use to really set the framework for what people are going through, uh, about, you know, embark on in terms of the therapy, uh, provides meditations, readings, videos, so everyone's prepared and understanding while they're going through it, provides mood monitoring, all sorts of tools that make the therapeutic process a much more manageable because one of the challenges I think with therapy generally is that it seems like an unending road, you know, you don't know what the milestones are. You kind of start and you never know where you're going to end. Whereas chunking it up and breaking it down into like a step-by-step process, I think makes it much more approachable for a lot of people. And it also enables us to collect a lot of data so we can see what's working, what's effective, um, what people are responding to. Uh, and so that's Portal. And then we launched an app called Trip. Um, which was kind of inspired by the recognition that as various cities started to decriminalize psychedelics, like we saw in Denver and Oakland and now Cambridge and uh, Ann Arbor, there's going to be a lot of people who are out exploring with consciousness expansion and self-discovery in, in a variety of manners without any tools or understanding or best practices. So we realized that we could take what we've developed for our in-clinic experience and simplify it and synthesize it and put it out to the world. So people could start, you know, if they're going to do this kind of work, they're doing it with a really strong basis to start from instead of just, you know, taking mushrooms or doing breath work or anything along those lines by themselves without any guidance. Uh, and so that was what trip is designed to support, you know, really from a harm reduction perspective to make sure that if people are uh, doing anything with consciousness expansion, they're doing it from a, a good starting place with the right information. What's your outlook on uh, the use of psychedelics um, in, in the United States moving forward? I, I know you guys have got things going on in Canada. You've got the facility down in Jamaica. You're over in Amsterdam. You do have some facilities here in, in the U.S. Um, do you do you see this uh, becoming more widespread? I, I know you mentioned what's going on in Oregon and, and Denver. Where uh, where overall are we heading here? Yeah, in the U.S., we're we're operating. We have five, four, four facilities operating, providing ketamine-assisted therapy. So there is one currently legal form of psychedelic-assisted therapy, even though ketamine is not conventionally considered uh, a psychedelic. It works in many of the same ways, and people have experiences very similar to the classic psychedelics. So it is already mainstream and broadly accessible and available, at least from a legal medical perspective, through off-label use of ketamine. Um, but no, certainly I anticipate you're going to see legal access to psychedelic therapies using the classics like MDMA and psilocybin and potentially others, uh, you know, as soon as two years from now uh, in Canada and the U.S. because MAPS, which is the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, uh, they're in the second part of their phase three trial looking at MDMA-assisted uh, therapy for the treatment of PTSD. Uh, their the first phase three showed incredible results. Their phase two showed um, you know, people don't like using this term, but it's the simplest way to describe it, an almost effective cure for PTSD uh, when they found that 70% of the participants in their phase two who had chronic severe PTSD on average for 17 years following two or three treatments, I can't remember exactly, uh, no longer met the DSM criteria as having PTSD. Uh, now, we don't know how long those benefits are sustained for, but it is pretty significant and pretty impactful that people, you know, no longer qualify as having PTSD after completion of these treatments. Um, 
So, you know, it, it does start to look like a, a potential cure for the people it does work for. And it's not everybody, but it is 70% is a significant part of the population. So we're seeing really amazing clinical trials with MDMA and, and those should be finished and presumably approved sometime in the next year or two. So I think by 2023, we'll see MDMA 2025 or 2026. We anticipate the clinical trials um, for synthetic psilocybin, uh, which has been granted breakthrough therapy status by the FDA along with the MDMA trials uh, to be completed and approved. So I think you'll see federal legal medical access to psychedelic therapies by 2025, 2026 um, for psilocybin and MDMA and, and potentially others. But those are the, the two drugs that are, are really leading the charge right now. And then there's going to be the state by state stuff like Oregon. Oregon will have a legal market for psilocybin therapies. Um, by next year, uh, if all goes according to plan. And I think you'll see a number of other states like Florida and Hawaii and uh, um, California have all introduced legislation to create similar type programs to Oregon. So those could even come faster, uh, but 2025, 2026 at the outset. A lot to look forward to. Uh, one more thing I wanted to ask you about before I let you go. Sure. Uh, Field Trip went public on the Canadian Securities Exchange last year. Uh, could you just kind of tell us a little bit about what went into that decision and uh, how it's impacted uh, your business and, and where Field Trip is headed overall? Sure. So one of the things that we realized very early on in our conversations with um you know, the key leaders in the early days of the modern psychedelic renaissance, people like Rick Doblin and, and Michael Pollan and, and the folks at the Beckley uh, Institute in the UK was that a whole new set of infrastructure is going to be needed in order to enable people to access these therapies at scale. This is not something that can be done in a conventional doctor's office because a psilocybin experience is anywhere from four to six hours and requires a whole bunch of staffing that most doctor's offices don't provide. Um, and, and so as we realized that the expense of building out this new clinical infrastructure, as well as developing, you know, new drugs and taking them through clinical trials, this is going to be a capital intensive uh, effort to, to build out the, the functioning aspects of this industry. And so access to capital has always been top of mind for us. And even though it, we didn't anticipate going public as early as we did, um, there was something called the COVID-19 pandemic that really roiled the, the financial markets. Uh, and so even though there's a lot of excitement uh, around uh, field trip and, and what we were doing, a lot of investor interest, the consistent feedback from all of the investors was, love what you're doing, want to be part of the story, want to invest. But with such an out uncertain outlook, I can't have my money tied up in a private company. We, we would need access to liquidity in order to make an investment decision. So uh, we heard that enough times that we decided to accelerate our, our, our path to being public. And, and so we listed on the Canadian Securities Exchange in, in October, uh, which is great. You know, it's, it's helped build a platform to further advance the discussion around psychedelics. You know, having been in the early days of the Canadian cannabis industry and watching company called then called Tweed, now called Canopy Go Public, it really helped amplify the conversation around cannabis. And, and so we are certainly using the fact that we're obliged to provide a lot of information as a public company, as, as a tool and a, and a method to help create awareness for the science and uh, research around psychedelic therapies as well. All right. Ronan Levy, uh, best of luck to you and your team at Field Trip. A lot of uh, interesting stuff going on, and uh, we uh, we look forward to seeing uh, what happens here uh, to come. Thanks a lot for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a real pleasure.
All right. As a reminder, you could subscribe to the BHE podcast on Apple Podcasts, the TuneIn app, and other podcast listening platforms. Past episodes are also available on our website, behavioral.net. Our thanks again to Ronan Levy of Field Trip Health for joining us. I'm Tom Valentino, and this has been the Behavioral Healthcare Executive Podcast. Mm-hmm.